Well, welcome back to our New Testament survey where we are going through the books of the Bible, uh, one book each week. And this evening we find ourselves uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. Uh, once again, we're looking at an epistle. Uh, it's a letter that is sent um, that is meant to be read widely. This one is meant to be read by all of the churches in this particular region of Galatia and then, of course, preserved by God for us so that uh, churches around the world have uh, been reading this letter for the last 2,000 years and benefiting from it. Uh, we note that, uh, once again, that this letter was penned by the Apostle Paul, and uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, earlier this week uh, from uh, Dr. James Renahan on the subject of hermeneutics, and one of the comments he made that I really liked was that as we look at the books of the Bible and we consider the human author, he referred to them as the secondary author, uh, because the primary author is the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we recognize that even as we acknowledge Paul to be the one who wrote the letter or penned it uh, through a secretary possibly, that ultimately it was the Holy Spirit who inspired these words uh, for the benefit of the churches in Galatia and for us as well. This is quite likely uh, one of the earliest uh, written books of the New Testament. It is likely that Galatians was written around the year 48 AD. Now the reason we say that is because um, we know uh, during Paul's first missionary journey uh, that he visited some of these uh, cities in this region and that churches were begun there uh, in Poseidon, Antioch, in Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and that that missionary journey happened uh, between 45 and 47 AD. So we know the letter would be written after that, but because there's no mention here of the Jerusalem Council, which was dealing with the same topic he's dealing with in this letter, uh, we assume that it was written before the Jerusalem Council took place. Otherwise, he would have mentioned it, uh, referred to the letter that was sent from the Jerusalem Council to the churches. With no mention of that, we have to assume this letter was written before that council took place. So what is the purpose of the book of Galatians? Well, overall, as Paul is writing uh, to the, the churches in this region, what has happened is after the churches were begun, some Jewish Christian teachers had come in and begun to tell the Gentiles in this region of uh, the Roman Empire that they needed to be circumcised and basically become Jewish in order to be Christians. And so Paul is writing to correct that notion to warn them uh, against adding works to their faith for the purpose of justification. Now, he's not warning them against works, obviously, and we'll see that uh, a little bit even here in the book of Galatians, but he's warning them that faith is the means by which we are justified, by faith in Christ and not by relying in our own efforts. You're not part of the family of God because you got circumcised or adopted different uh, aspects of the old covenant law that would make you Jewish, you're part of uh, the family of God by faith in Christ. So uh, that's the main purpose. Obviously then the themes of the letter are going to deal with this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, and interestingly, uh, in the last couple of decades, uh, there's been a movement, N.T. Wright is one of the authors that was part of it, called The New Perspective on Paul, that has said that um, historically we've misunderstood Paul. 
uh, in Romans and Galatians particularly, that uh, when he's addressing uh, these issues of justification of faith, that he's not addressing the individual standing before God, but rather that he is addressing um, social aspects, social, like the Gentiles relating to Jews and how the, the gospel, how faith would uh, apply to those relationships. Now, they're not entirely wrong. There is an aspect of that here, and we'll see that as we go through it. But ultimately, we'll also note that our identity as God's people is found in Christ, not uh, in our horizontal relationships with one another. Those are uh, a result of our right standing before God because of our being engrafted into Christ by means of faith. So the new perspective on Paul has a kernel of truth in it, uh, but they've missed uh, the main idea. So that's, that's one of the things Paul is dealing with, is this idea of justification by faith. And then, of course, part of that uh, is focusing on our identity as uh, the covenant community being rooted in Christ. So if we look at the letter, uh, this outline of the letter of Galatians would be a little more complicated than some of the ones we've looked at uh, in the past. We have the letter opening and greeting there in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. And then the remainder of chapter 1 deals with Paul's apostolic authority, establishing uh, his authority as an apostle uh, and the origin and source of the message that he has proclaimed to them, the gospel message that he has proclaimed. Chapter 2 then uh, provides for us two examples of Paul applying the gospel to different situations uh, regarding Jew and Gentile. Chapter 3 deals with the issue of the Old Testament law and its relationship to our salvation, our justification before God. Chapter 4 is then Uh, taken up with the the idea or the concept of the church as the people of God and our identity as God's people. Chapter 5 then deals with the law and Christian liberty or freedom in Christ and how the Old Testament law would relate to that. And then chapter 6, the last chapter, uh, takes this idea of our identity as God's people uh, and wraps up the letter. So if we look at the the opening of the letter, the first five verses, we'll notice um, a couple of things here in Paul's address to the Galatians that is a little bit different than most of his other letters. He opens this way, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's his introduction. Now, if you'll remember from some of his other letters that we've looked at, even the letters to the church in Corinth, which uh, had some pretty major issues that Paul had to deal with, he still included in that introductory section Uh, some thankfulness for them or for uh, certain aspects of the Spirit at work in their church. We don't find that here. Uh, The issue is so important 
that Paul doesn't spare any time uh, to praise them or to uh, thank God for his work among them in any way because this is foundational. If you get this wrong, you don't even have a true church. So Paul doesn't, he doesn't do into that. He doesn't go into that sort of thing. He just gives them a brief introduction and then jumps into the meat of the letter. But even here in the introduction, there are two topics that he brings up that are important. In verse 1, he makes a point of saying uh, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Uh, So he mentions the resurrection, which uh, will tie into some of his discussion later in the chapter concerning uh, the church as a new creation in Christ. So he's already setting the theme for our identity as a new creation in Christ. And then in verse 4, he mentions that Christ gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. And so there he is uh, right at the beginning introducing the heart of the gospel message, and that is the sacrificial atonement of Christ for us. And he is alluding there to uh, Isaiah chapter 53, which is going to be Uh, That section of Isaiah is very much in his mind as he writes this letter. But Isaiah 53 is dealing with uh, the servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah. Uh, But we read things like this in Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. So uh, we see uh, that I, those concepts from Isaiah that Christ uh, has given himself for our sins, to bear our sins, and, and to therefore save us. And so the, the, res, the new creation in Christ because of the resurrection, uh, the heart of the gospel in the su- substitutionary atonement of Christ right there in the introduction. Paul then jumps in the rest of the chapter. One deals with uh, defending his apostolic authority. And he begins right in verse 6 by expressing shock that he's even having to deal with this issue. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So the problem is, is that what they're turning to is not the true gospel. And so Paul is, is shocked by their abandonment of the true gospel that he had preached to them. Uh, and in verse 10, uh, he argues and says, For I do, do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And so uh, the reason that he is speaking to them in the way that he is is because his desire is to please God uh, and not just to coddle them uh, in their false belief. And you kind of get the the picture here uh, of Paul uh, interacting with the Galatian believers uh, in a similar way to an Old Testament prophet. Uh, If we think about Elijah uh, in 1 Kings 18 on Mount Carmel, uh, calling the people to repent, to turn away from their false worship of Baal, uh, and to turn back to God and doing so uh, very boldly and clearly, uh, calling them to return to God. And that's what Paul is doing here, calling them to turn away from the false gospel they've believed and to turn back to the true gospel. Uh, In verse 12, he says, 
For I neither received it, that would be the gospel that he preached, from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So uh, he makes the point that the message that he had preached to them wasn't his own. It wasn't something he got from other men. It wasn't something he made up. This was a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so uh, the point is, if you reject that gospel and turn to something else, you've not just rejected Paul and his teaching, you've rejected Christ because that was where it came from. The gospel was Christ's message to them. And so if they reject what Paul had preached to them, they are ultimately rejecting Christ himself. In verse 15, he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, to call me through his grace, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Uh, And then he gives a bit of his history uh, there interacting with the other apostles. But uh, there's kind of an allusion here to, uh, back again to Isaiah, to chapter 49, where Isaiah wrote and said, uh, Isaiah, not Jeremiah, in Isaiah 49, where he said, uh, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. He has made me a polished shaft in his quiver. Uh, He has hidden me. And then he goes on uh, there in chapter 49 to talk about um, how the servant's mission is not only to restore uh, Israel, the remnant of Israel, but is also to convert the Gentiles. Uh, there in Isaiah 49, 6. So Paul sees his ministry as very much being aligned and bound up with Christ's mission. Christ, the suffering servant of Isaiah, uh, who was called to restore Israel, but also to convert the Gentiles. And Paul uh, sees his ministry as very much a part of that uh, work of Christ. Then in chapter 2, Paul begins to Uh, give us two examples of the gospel at work. And uh, in his commentary, G.K. Beale says this, and I think it's helpful, so I wanted to quote him. He says that we need to consider Christ as a hermeneutical filter. Now, hermeneutical simply means interpretive. This is how we interpret uh, the scriptures. So Christ is to be a hermeneutical filter through which the entire law passes. He filters out those aspects of the law that were designed for national Israel and do not relate to the new covenant community in the new age. Uh, And so uh, we'll see that, that uh, there are different aspects of the old covenant law, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, and Christ fulfills some of those and filters them out. They uh, no longer have the same application to the new covenant community that they did to the old covenant community. And so Paul gives us two examples of this in chapter 2. He tells us that uh, he visit visited Jerusalem uh, at one point, 14 years uh, after his conversion, uh, and he took Titus with him, and he says in verse 2, And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Uh, So 
No mention of the Jerusalem Council here. This is not a, a public thing, but he privately speaks with some of the other apostles uh, when he visited Jerusalem. And then he tells us in verse 3, uh, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So uh, he's got one of his assistants, Titus, who is not a Jew. He's a Greek. Uh, and when Paul meets with the other apostles in Jerusalem, uh, they don't counsel him to have Titus circumcised. So he's making the point that uh, the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised in order to be in Christ and to be part of the new covenant community. And verses 9 and 10, uh, he then relates and says that when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Now this is a reference to uh, the collection that Paul was taking up among the churches for uh, the poor and uh, persecuted and suffering believers in Judea. So his point here with this uh, first story in chapter 2 uh, is to show us that James, Peter, and John agreed with him that the Gentiles did not have to undergo circumcision and become Jewish proselytes in order to be Christians, that they could just by faith in Christ be Christians, uh, and that there was a unity among the churches among the Gentile churches and the Jewish churches, such that he could take up this collection uh, for the believers in Judea. And so they were united to one another as one body of Christ, uh, even though the Gentiles did not have to uh, adopt Jewish ethnic culture uh, in order to be part of that. The second part of the chapter, uh, he relates to us another uh, instance in which the gospel has to be applied, and this is uh, when he is forced to confront Peter uh, and Peter's hypocrisy. Peter had come to Antioch, uh, and he had was just engaged in fellowship with the church there, which was largely Gentile. But then, at some point, some people come from James in Jerusalem, and when that happens, uh, Peter withdraws from the fellowship he had been enjoying with the Gentile believers there in Antioch. And then in verse 13, uh, he, Paul writes and says, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And so Paul is forced to confront this situation. Uh, he, he says that they were not um, being honest about the gospel, and so he confronts Peter about this, uh, and one of the things he tells Peter is that in verse 16, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we, meaning him and Peter, the other Jewish believers, have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So uh, he had to confront other Jewish believers uh, and remind them that they themselves, their justification, their right standing before God was not because they had been circumcised or kept dietary laws or other uh, cleanliness laws that had to do with the old covenant, but strictly on the basis of them being grafted into Christ by faith. And so he says this in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, So uh, he kind of heads off at the pass uh, the accusation that, well, if you, if you tell people that they're saved by faith alone and not by works, aren't they just going to live sinfully? And he says, no, because the life that we live is Christ in us uh, so that it's no longer me, it's Christ who's living in me. Uh, so we don't have an excuse to live sinfully. We have been saved by Christ and it's his spirit that dwells in us and causes us to live as a new creation. So uh, the point of chapter 2 is is that the gospel, uh, the message of justification by faith alone, applies to both the Jew and the Gentile. Titus was not required to be circumcised. He was considered a believer on the basis of his faith, but also the Jews who had been circumcised, that wasn't why they were saved. They were saved because of faith in Christ. So that's the point uh, of chapter 2. Moving into chapter 3 then begins to address uh, the relationship between the old covenant law and our salvation under the new covenant. And one of the things he says, uh, beginning in verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. So uh, the crucifixion of Christ, the substitutionary, sacrificial death of Christ on the cross is the centerpiece of the gospel message. And that is what we uh, place our faith in, is that work of Christ bearing our sins, dying the death that we should have died on the cross so that we uh, might be forgiven and accepted by God. And so Paul reminds them in verse 3 that they did not uh, begin to be Christians by works, but rather by faith. He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You didn't start out uh, by keeping the law. You started out by a work of the Spirit in you to to grant you regenerate hearts that you might believe. That's the basis of your justification, not uh, your effort for yourself. He then says in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So there he's quoting from from Genesis. um, And he's, you know, Abraham, of course, is the center of uh, the Jewish ethnic identity, that they're descended from Abraham. Uh, And so he's saying, even Abraham was justified by faith and not by works of the law. And then he says in verse 7, Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So uh, the Gentiles can be sons of Abraham every bit as much as the Jews can because the true uh, offspring of Abraham, according to the Spirit, are those who believe, uh, not those who keep the law. In verse 10, he then makes the point that uh, reliance on Uh, Our efforts to keep the law brings a curse, not a blessing. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Uh, So uh, if you rely on your own efforts to keep the law in order to be right with God, uh, you don't receive a blessing, you receive a curse because you have to keep the whole law perfectly. And you can't do that. And then he says in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So uh, Christ has redeemed us so that we're no longer under the law, we're no longer under the curse and condemnation of the law. Christ bore that for us uh, so that we could have life in him. And then he makes the point that the blessing of Abraham, he says in verse 14, might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So a curse uh, comes from our own efforts to try and keep the law, but a blessing comes by faith in Christ. So this is, we're talking about our right standing before God, our justification. Um, If we're relying on our works for our right standing before God, what we receive is a curse. If we're relying on Christ's work by faith, then we receive the blessing of salvation. Uh, In verse 16, he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And so he's making the point that the promise to Abraham was the promise of the Messiah, of Christ, who would be the blessing to all the nations. And then he says in verse 17, And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So the promise came first, the law comes after that, so the law serves the promise. The promise doesn't serve the law. Uh, The law has a purpose, but its purpose is to serve the promise of blessing in Christ. So what uh, purpose does the law serve? Well, he says in verse 22, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Uh, So the law's purpose, and he he works this out in all of the text there, but the law's purpose is to show us our own inability uh, to be holy and, and to be right before God. So it forces us, it drives us to Christ that we trust in him rather than in ourself. In verse 28, he then says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, So the unity of the church is found not in our ethnic identity, not in our national identity, uh, not in our keeping of old covenant rules and regulations, but purely in Christ. That's where our our identity is. Is rooted. So that is the relationship of the law to our salvation. It is there to drive us to Christ by pointing out the fact that we need Christ's righteousness because we have none of our own. In chapter 4, uh, Paul then begins to uh, address this idea of uh, the church as a new covenant people of God, a new creation. Uh, he says in, chap- in chapter 4, verse 2, um, that uh, the, the one who was under the law uh, is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Uh, so he, the point he's making is that the old covenant, uh, the national laws that attended the old covenant were temporary. He's, he's making an analogy uh, to something they would have understood in their culture that if you have a, a child who is your heir, uh, that you might uh, give him Uh, unto guardians and stewards and tutors uh, who would watch over him and care for him until uh, the time that is appointed when he would inherit. And then at that point, 
he no longer has a need for those guardians because he has grown up and can inherit. The old covenant was that way. It served a purpose for a time. Once it had fulfilled that purpose, uh, it was no longer necessary. It was temporary. It was never meant to be permanent. Uh, it is done away with in Christ. He says in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So uh, Christ comes at that appointed time, appointed by the Father, uh, that we might inherit. And so the old covenant uh, is no longer necessary at that point. Now, again, that quote that I shared from G.K. Beale earlier when he said Christ is a hermeneutical filter through which we run the law, and it filters out the parts that uh, applied to the Old Covenant, but he also allows through uh, the parts that apply to the New Covenant, and so we have to view uh, the law of God in that way. And so if we think about our confession and what it says about the law of God, it talks about the law written on our hearts, uh, which is found in the Ten Commandments, but then it says, uh, this is in chapter 19, paragraph 3, besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation are by Christ Jesus, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. So the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant, all of the sacrificial laws in Leviticus, uh, the festivals, all of those things are fulfilled in Christ. And so those are aspects of the law that Christ filters out. Uh, they were there, they pointed towards Christ, they pointed the way forward to him, uh, but they're no longer necessary under the New Covenant. Paragraph 4 then says, To them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity being only being of moral use. So the judicial laws that governed the nation of Israel, the theocratic nation of Israel, are not binding now uh, on any nation. Now, they still serve a purpose. It says they're general equity. Uh, so they, they have a purpose. They serve as a great foundation for national laws. They also have a, a general equity application in the church, which is the nation of God. Uh, but they're no longer binding on the people of God in the same way that they were when the people of God constituted a geopolitical nation. But the moral law... Uh, doth forever bind all. So the, the aspect of the law that does come through and continues to have application is the moral law, which we know uh, as the Ten Commandments. And Paul will deal with that uh, shortly and how that is applied. But at, at this point, he's saying those old covenant aspects of the law have been done away with by Christ. Uh, and so then he, his part of what he's addressing here in chapter 4 is... Uh, he says that they're returning to uh, some of those old covenant laws that should have been filtered out by Christ. In verse 10, he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Uh, and so that's kind of a, a reference to uh, the old covenant festivals and, and uh, 
ecclesiastical calendar that they had under the Old Covenant. And he's saying that stuff's been filtered out by Christ. It, it all found its fulfillment in him. And when you're turning back to that sort of thing, you're turning away from Christ, away from the gospel. Uh, and so he, he's concerned for them uh, because of that. Then he says in verse 12, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You've not injured me at all. And so uh, his point here is that he wants them to imitate him uh, who became as if he were a Gentile. He became like them in the sense of no longer under obligation to all of those old covenant forms. And so he wants them to be like him and not return back to uh, those old covenant ceremonial forms of the law. In verse 17, uh, he then says that the false teachers, he says, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. And so their, their purpose, uh, these false teachers who would tell them they need to be circumcised, they need to keep these old covenant ceremonial uh, aspects in order to adopt a Jewish nationality and culture before they can become Christians, he says, they're not doing that for your good. They're not doing it for the glory of God. They're doing it so that you will make much of them. Uh, they want followers for themselves. Uh, Paul then uh, makes this appeal in the, the latter half of chapter 4 uh, to the Old Testament uh, law. Uh, and by that he means the Old Testament. He says in verse 21, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And then he's going to talk about Abraham. So he's going back to Genesis. He's not talking about uh, the Ten Commandments here. He's just talking about the Old Testament and all of these things that are attendant with it in the Old Covenant. Uh, he says, you want to be under the law? Don't you know what the law says? And so he goes back to the history of Abraham and Abraham's uh, wife, Sarah, and Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, and the two sons who are born to those women, respectively, Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, and he says uh, that it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondswoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondswoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. Uh, and so, now when he says these things are symbolic, what's a symbol? It's something that stands for something else. Uh, in the King James, it says these things are allegorical. Or they're an allegory. He doesn't mean that they're an allegory in the sense that the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is an allegory. That's a fiction that symbolizes something else. Paul doesn't mean that these things didn't really happen. They're historic realities. Uh, there's a great quote here, uh, and I just didn't want to write it all out of my notes, so I just read it out of the book. Um, this is a book on hermeneutics, on interpreting the scripture. He's dealing with this particular passage, and he quotes Calvin at some length. Calvin says this, he says, Paul certainly does not mean that Moses wrote the history for the purpose of being turned into an allegory, but points out in what way the history may be made to answer the present subject. This is done by observing a figurative representation of the church there delineated, and a mystical interpretation of this sort was not inconsistent with the true and literal meaning when a comparison was drawn between the church and the family of Abraham. As the house of Abraham was then a true church, so it is beyond all doubt that the principal and most memorable events which happened in it are so many types to us. 
As in circumcision and sacrifices in the whole Levitical priesthood, there was an allegory, as there is an allegory in the house of Abraham. But this does not involve a departure from the literal meaning. Uh, And so Calvin's point is, uh, you can't just take an Old Testament text and, and make it mean something by just imagining and coming up with something. Uh, but there is a, a true way to read that story because the church really was Abraham's household at that point. Uh, and so he says we can read it in this way, we can interpret it in this way, uh, that Hagar represents the old covenant and Sarah represents the new covenant. Uh, now, Paul didn't come up with this on his own. He got this from Isaiah. All right? Isaiah talks about Abraham and Sarah in this way. Uh, and what this is, is is known theologically as the anagogical uh, meaning of the text. Uh, so if we look at a text of the scriptures, there is a literal historical uh, meaning, right? Abraham had Sarah, his wife, her handmaiden, had two sons. These things happened. That's the literal thing that happened. But when we read it, uh, we can look for a, a, what they call a Christological application of it. What are we supposed to believe about God because of this history? Then there's the tropological application, which is what are we supposed to do in response to this text? How does it inform the way we live? The anagogical uh, meaning is what are we to hope because of this text? How does this text inform our hope for eternity? Well, Isaiah picks up on this uh, story of Abraham's household and tells us uh, that in Isaiah chapter 54, he says this, Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Uh, So Isaiah is talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about the people of Israel in their Babylonian captivity. Uh, and he's saying that they are going to be restored uh, and not be barren anymore, but be fruitful. Uh, now, if we put this in context of Isaiah's larger uh, prophecies here, and we flip back to chapter 51, uh, he says this, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And and he goes on to talk about the Lord restoring Jerusalem, and the heavenly Jerusalem. And and so Isaiah makes this comparison between two Jerusalems, an earthly Jerusalem and a heavenly Jerusalem. One is the Jerusalem in exile, the people of God in exile. One is the people of God restored and again fruitful. And he makes the point that the Gentiles are included in this restored people of God, in the new heavenly Jerusalem. And so that's what Paul is picking up on from Isaiah, this way of, of looking at Sarah as the mother of the faithful, of the restored Jerusalem uh, who would be fruitful. All those who believe uh, in Christ are brought out of spiritual exile uh, and become children of the heavenly Jerusalem. And so that's what he says, uh, his conclusion at the end of chapter 4 is, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Uh, And he's talking to Gentiles when he says this, and himself being a Jew. And so he's saying all of us, by faith in Christ, are children 
of the new heavenly Jerusalem, the new people of God. We are not in bondage under the law uh, the way uh, Hagar would represent that. So then, he, dealing with that identity, he then moves into chapter 5 and begins to look at uh, how the law then uh, interacts with our liberty as Christians. If, if Christ has filtered out certain aspects of the law, ceremonial and civil, uh, then what freedom do we have in Christ and how does that work together with the law of God? Well, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So don't, don't go back uh, to that bondage that he just spoke about. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. So if you're in Christ and you're free in him, your salvation is in him, great. But if you think that you need to be circumcised before you can be in Christ, Christ is of no value to you. It's all or nothing. It's one or the other. You can't have both. You can't have your own effort, your own works of keeping these ceremonial laws and Christ. You have one or the other. In fact, he says in verse 3, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. So it's all or nothing. You either keep it all for yourself and stand before God on the basis of your own works or you rely on Christ entirely and wholly apart from your own efforts. But does that mean um, then that we don't have to do anything? That we can live however we want? That the law has no application to us at all? Well, he says in verse 6, well, he says, start in verse 5, he says, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Uh, so circumcised, uncircumcised, doesn't matter. That's not what makes you right before God. That's not uh, the point. But it's faith in Christ, reliance on his works to justify you. But then that faith works through love, uh, to do things. And so he begins to talk about uh, how uh, we keep the law as Christians. We're not at liberty uh, to sin wantonly. Uh, he says in verse 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Uh, so our freedom in Christ, freedom from the old covenant ceremonial and judicial aspects of the law is not the license to sin. Now, we're saved, we're made righteous before God by Christ's work, but then because we've been made righteous before God, because we've been adopted as God's children, uh, we are then called uh, to keep the moral parts of the law, the Ten Commandments uh, and their application that Christ teaches us uh, in as a way of life for us. And so he says in verse 14, For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting there from Leviticus 19, verse 18, uh, which, of course, Jesus uh, quotes as well uh, in Mark 12, uh, for one place, offering it up as a summary of the law, summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so the moral law serves as uh, a way of living for us as believers, not 
the means of gaining entrance to the covenant community. It's not how we become believers, but it is how we live as believers. Uh, And so then in verses 16 through 21, Paul addresses what uh, life would be like under the law, and he makes the point of, of pointing out all of these sins to which mankind is given and that we cannot free ourselves from these things. And if we're attempting to live in our own efforts, then we, uh, the works of the flesh, he says, would be evident. And he lists off all these horrible things uh, that we would do in our own effort. But, uh, he says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So life in the Spirit is very different than life uh, in our own fleshly efforts. Uh, And think about, uh, you know, Paul has been saying, uh, you're not under the law, the law is not what saves you, you're saved by faith in Christ and not by your own efforts to keep the law. And then here, uh, he makes this point about the fruit of the Spirit uh, and lists off all these things that are fruits. And, and think about uh, the, the very first psalm uh, in the book of Psalms, which tells us that the man who loves, who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates in it day and night shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Well, here's the fruit that comes from those who delight in the moral law of God. Not looking to the law to earn their right standing before God, but delighting in the law as a way to love God and to love our neighbor results in these sorts of fruits uh, that Paul points out for us here at the end of chapter 5. Then moving into the final chapter, into chapter 6, Uh, Paul goes back to this idea of our identity as God's people, as a new creation. And so he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So if you are spiritual, he says, you who are spiritual, you're part of the restored Jerusalem, the new heavenly Jerusalem, you're part of this new creation, people of God, then those who have fallen into sin, you should restore them with gentleness. They've been deceived by this false teaching. Uh, They've fallen away from the truth of the gospel. Work to restore them with gentleness. Uh, He says that if you sow to the flesh, in verse 8, he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Well, if you sow to the flesh, given the context, everything that Paul's been saying, if you count on your own fleshly efforts to keep the law for your right standing before God, you'll reap corruption, destruction. Uh, But if you want everlasting life as the fruit, then that's a work of the Spirit, uh, not a work of your flesh. Then in chapter 16, verse 14, uh, Paul makes the point that we should boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Uh, We're not to boast in our own efforts, in our own accomplishments, in our own works. We're not to boast in our circumcision or our uncircumcision. We are to boast in Christ alone and in his substitutionary death on the cross. He says in verse 15, for in, because, the reason we're to boast is because for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Circumcision, of course, is the law. The law doesn't accomplish anything. 
but being uncircumcised, being a Gentile, doesn't accomplish anything for your salvation either. It is only being in Christ as a new creation that accomplishes salvation. He then says in verse 16, For as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Once again, he's pulling ideas from the prophet Isaiah. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 54, uh, which Paul has been referencing and alluding to multiple times, uh, we see this. It says, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. And throughout that whole passage in, uh, near the end of chapter 54 of Isaiah, we see those concepts of peace and mercy uh, mentioned multiple times in regard to the new restored Jerusalem brought out of spiritual captivity and restored to freedom. Uh, and so Paul's been using that metaphor all along, uh, and he says that uh, the true Israel of God uh, will experience that peace and that mercy that Isaiah promised those who are in Christ by faith, whether they're Jew or Gentile, uh, are going to experience the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So you know, the big ideas here in Galatians are that we are justified by Christ and not by our own efforts, that we find our identity in Christ not in our ethnicity, not in our national uh, identity, but in Christ, that we become part of the community of faith, part of the church, the family of God, not by our own efforts, not by keeping a certain set of laws, but merely by our being united to Christ by faith. Our identity then is the Israel of God because we are in Christ who is the true Israel. And the fruit of that is the keeping of the moral law, and all of those things that Paul listed for us there at the end of chapter 5, which includes unity between the Gentile and the Jew in the church. Let's pray.